Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. A couple things that I need to mention. I mentioned the convent in London that's at right near Tyburn Hill. Again, it's near the Marble Arch area, so it's all been developed. Back in Edmund Campion's time, it was the country. So down the street is what is called Tyburn Convent, and it's run by the Sisters of the Sacred Heart. And they were a group, a community, that had to flee England at one time, and then after, I forget what it was, whether it was World War I or World War II, they went back to England but they were a community that managed to preserve many of the relics of the English martyrs. So it's worth a visit if you're ever in London. Then the other thing that I want to mention is the Catechism's a very beautiful book, but sometimes it can become a little overwhelming too. But, so you might want to start with what's called the Compendium, which is a simpler, like hits the highlights kind of book, and then use that go to the Catechism more for the more detailed version. But don't be intimidated by the Catechism. You know, I remember when that was published, and if memory serves me right, 1993. And what a beautiful book. You know, Pope John Paul II, Saint, is the one who inspired that. And I remember even Pat Robertson on his 700 Club thing, actually holding it up and saying, this is a beautiful book. You know, everybody should have this book. Because really, when you think about it, all the teachings, when you look at the indexes with the scripture quotations, the church fathers, the different councils of the church, it shows a beautiful continuity of faith. We're so blessed to have that. So it's not as a matter of like, you go to this Catholic church and you hear this teaching and this Catholic church that teaching. Here's the teaching. And it goes from Old Testament straight on through, how it's developed through the Holy Spirit. Now, during the break, some of you brought up questions like, what do you say about you know, same-sex couples or this whole transgender thing? And definitely in the past eight years especially, all this has been very politicized and very prevalent and so on. And I think one thing we have to recognize is most people today are irrational. They are. They don't want to listen to reason. They do not think they feel. And even when they talk about things, they say, well, I feel. Well, I don't care what you feel, think. See, and people don't want to think. So you and I have to know the truths, try to have the good arguments to present and try to convert and so on. But we also have to realize sometimes there's no convincing people because it's all irrational. Like when we think of the whole transgender issue, that is so much, it's all about me. And instead of being, instead of recognizing we're made in the image of God, now it's like, I'm going to make my own image, whatever it is. 
So to me, it would be very simple. You know, baby's born, you do the chromosomes, you know baby's a boy or a girl. And you look down, you know you're a boy or a girl, right? So if the physical reality is not, or the brain's not thinking, or the mental part's not agreeing with the physical reality, you're now in a mental disorder, really. There's a psychological problem here. There is. And I'm not putting anyone down, because I think these people need help. Maybe it's part of culture, maybe there's some rebellion, I don't know. But we have to deal with reality. Even Aristotle talks about realism. You are who you are, but people today want to be something else. Remember there was that lady, I forget her name, but she pretended to be African American. Well, if, when you think about it, and everybody got upset in the African-American community because she wasn't African-American. But why not? Because if you take the argument to its extreme, if you can say, well, I'm going to be a girl today, well, why can't I be African-American? Why can't I be Chinese? I said this at mass once when it came up. It's like when I was little, I wanted to be an American Indian. I wanted to be an Indian. I always took the side of the underdog. So I had the teepee. I had the outfit, I had the tomahawk, I had everything. And I asked my mother, I said, aren't we American Indian? And my mom said, no honey, <laughs> we aren't American Indian. Our, your great grandparents came over from Austria and Germany. <laughs> no, I didn't have a sign. That's the way it is. Okay, so I'm not an American Indian. But in our world today, I could be, couldn't I? But that's irrational. We aren't using reason anymore. So what do you say to these people? Well, I don't know if you can say anything. And that's where the Holy Spirit gives us the grace to know when to endure, when to attack. Now attack not meaning you decimate a person, but speak and give the arguments, because they aren't going to listen. And we're maybe in this point where we endure. But I do believe, like Aristotle said, the slightest deviation of the truth leads to a multiple multitude of errors. We see that. And like Pope Benedict always said, error will always destroy itself. We'll see the fruits. We'll see the fruits and it will destroy itself. It's no different really than the abortion argument in a way. Like we could go through all these arguments and so on and there's still going to be the irrational, feelings-motivated person that says, it's my body, it's my right, and so on. Okay, but more and more the abortion rate is declining because people are seeing the sonograms more. For instance, about 15 years ago, General Electric came out with their new 3D color sonogram imaging system. And it was just one of those commercials, you know, GE brings good things to light. And you have this sonogram, you have this baby in the womb and so on. Planned Parenthood had a fit and forced them to take it off the air. Not the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl before. Doritos. Here you have, you know, dad eating his Doritos. Mom's having the sonogram. And you see baby reaching for the Doritos. <laughs> Planned Parenthood said, how outrageous that you humanize a fetus. Well, who ends up being the moron here? <laughs> Planned Parenthood. So error will defeat itself. It might be very painful, but it will. 
So this is where the fortitude has to have the hope. God will win. Truth will win. Goodness will win. But we're going to have to endure at times and have patience and persevere, have the meekness. Sad to say some people just don't want to listen. You see that? That's why I don't watch these political talk shows, you know, whether it's Hannity or O'Reilly or any of the others, because they all yell at each other. Yeah. They don't listen. We have a Congress where someone's, Mitch McConnell, let's say, is giving a speech in the Senate. No one's in there. <laughs> it's on C-SPAN. They aren't listening to each other. This is a problem. So until people can start using their intellect again and start opening their minds to truth, we're going to have to endure. But the way to change it is by being those good witnesses. Because guaranteed, someone who's been misled by the errors is going to say, well, that's how I want to live. They have something I want. They have a joy, a happiness. They have their act together. That's how I want to live. And that brings us really to our next topic about the importance of the family. The family is critical as a witness in today's world. So on this theme of martyrdoms, I think of Maximilian Kolbe. Now Maximilian Kolbe was born in 1894 in Poland, had a very devout family. When he was a young man, he had a vision of our Blessed Mother who presented him with two crowns. One was white for purity and chastity. One was red for martyrdom. And she said, which do you choose? And he said, I choose both. Well, then as a teenager, he entered the Franciscans. He was ordained as a priest. For a while, he was even a missionary in Japan, but because of ill health, had to return to Poland. He started what was called the Knights of the Immaculate, which was a Marian devotional group. They even had a publication that went worldwide. So a very pious, good kind of priest. But troubles come. September 1939, Hitler's panzers roll across the border of Poland, and immediately the church is persecuted. We should not forget how many thousands and <coughs> thousands of priests religious brothers and sisters were killed by the Nazis. It's not simply the Jews, all those six million, but there's another 12 million others that were killed by the Nazis. So because the Nazis, Hitler wanted to eradicate Poland. He wanted to eradicate Polish culture. He wanted to eradicate the church. So time goes on, 1941, the Gestapo is shutting down the presses for obvious reasons, and they arrest Maximilian Kolbe, many of his other Franciscan friars. They're sent to Auschwitz in the early spring. So you can imagine the humiliating whole situation of Auschwitz. I've been there, it's devastating. You know, when you think about how human beings can do this to another human being. Again, eclipse of reason, you think about it. So, but during that time, Maximilian Kolbe tried as best he could to still be a priest and minister to the needs of others. When he was going to be canonized, one of the young men who knew him, who was a Jewish teenager at the time, said this about Maximilian Kolbe. To me, he was a father, brother, confessor, and savior. 
we used to talk about the Polish homeland and the goodness of man. He didn't hate the Nazis and he taught me not to hate. The little food he had, he shared with me. Even though he was starving and his lips were swollen from hunger, he often gave his food away to others. I will always believe as long as I live that I survived and preserved my sanity because of St. Maximilian Kolbe. Other kids went berserk and would throw themselves at the electric fence, but he helped me to keep my sanity. That's a Jewish young man who knew St. Maximilian. Well, on July 30, 1941, a prisoner escaped from his cell block. And so the assistant commandant named Fritsch had all the soldiers line up in, soldiers, the prisoners line up in formation. And they waited there for 24 hours. You can imagine hot, sun, all that, just standing there. Well, by the end of the day, they realized this other escaped prisoner was not going to be found. So you pick 10. You pick 10 in retaliation. Imagine that. So here you all are in formation, and I get to play the commandant, and I just go along and just say, you, 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 to the starvation bunker. Imagine the feeling. Well, this one man was selected. He was a sergeant who's also present at the canonization. But he's a sergeant, and he pleaded, I've got a wife, I've got kids. Didn't matter. Well, Maximilian Colby, with great fortitude, and we think all this time, what fortitude to survive this awful, evil camp and still try to be a priest and bring comfort to, like, the young Jewish boy, Zygmunt Gorson. Maximilian Kolbe steps forward, which could have ended his life right there, to do that. And Fritsch says, what do you want, Polish pig? And Maximilian said, I want to exchange my life for this man's. And Fritsch said, why? Because I'm a Catholic priest and good for nothing. And Fritsch just went, made the wave. They exchanged what? Exchanged positions. So the 10 were stripped naked. They're taken down to this underground starvation bunker cell. And it's really, when you think of when I, I was there, to me it looked like maybe 10 by 10 room. And you have a little ceiling higher than this, but like this little slit of a window. And that's it for light, for air. And the toilet's a bucket. And that's it. And you're stripped naked, put in there. You hear the iron door shut. That's it. Well, a week went by, and the guards reported that they would hear prayers. Of course, you'd hear groans and so on, but they heard prayers, they heard hymns being sung. And they went in, and some had died, but some were still living. Another week goes by, open the door, and St. Maximilian is barely alive. So they finish him off with an injection of carbolic acid, and his life in this world ceases. But even the Jewish prisoners that had to carry out the bodies, and even the German soldiers who were the guards said, he died with an expression of joy. So when we think about this saint, we look at our own world today, and I hate to say it, it's like living in Auschwitz to some extent. We're surrounded by evil. Viktor Frankl, who was a Jewish psychiatrist who survived Auschwitz, wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he spoke how prisoners could become numb to evil. You can imagine that. 
Now here you are living in this system and you see the barbarity, the beatings, the tortures, the executions, all of that. You could easily become numb to evil and just go along, not even notice. Well, that's a problem in our society today. You and I as Christians, if we aren't living our faith with great fortitude and mindful that we're called to be a witness, we can become numb to it all. But look at what's going on in our society. I really see the evil, like working with young people. You see how many young people are deprived of genuine love, especially the love for God. Look at some statistics here. So when we think of eating disorders, you know, kids have to have this perfect model figure anymore. In our country, one out of 200 women suffer from anorexia. Three out of 100 from bulimia. That's very high. And 40 to 60% of these cases start happening in elementary school because kids see the fashion models and how you have to dress and this is who you have to be. 15% of teenagers have eating disorders. That's from NIH. 10% of female college students have eating disorders. Cutting. Cutting's a big problem, especially among girls. Begins at age 12 to 15. High school kids, 13 to 24% <coughs> kids cut themselves. They don't like who they are. College kids, 30 to 40%. These are statistics. Suicide, second leading cause of death for teens in the United States. Every 12 minutes, there's a suicide. According to high school statistics, 17% of kids seriously consider suicide. That's one out of six. 8% attempt suicide. STD, sexually transmitted diseases. U.S. has the highest rate in the world. 10 million young people aged 15 to 24 will contract an STD each year. Pornography is killing our country. It's killing men especially. It's a $15 billion industry. 60% of websites are pornographic. And when we look at the Journal of Adolescent Health, it says 96% of kids have seen something on the internet that's pornographic. And 20 to 30% traffic is with teens. What's that say about our world? And I think in my own county, so Loudoun County, just like Fairfax, richest counties in the country all these opportunities and so on and you have kids with the cutting the drugs opioids big problem big problem just a kid today well not today this week overdosed on an opioid in my parish not a parishioner but in the parish and suicide every, Loudoun County has one of the highest teenage suicide rates there is and you wonder what's wrong because we're living in Auschwitz, the lack of God. And people have become numb. So, you and I as witnesses, these martyrs for the faith, not only have to evangelize or be witnesses to the broader spectrum, but I firmly believe it's the family that's so important. If we want to change this world, we need to start changing our families. You look at kids today. We have a 50% divorce rate in our country in the first five years. Now, not only is that tragic, 
it's a bad investment. <laughs> Think about it. You know, when an average wedding in the United States, you know, in our metropolitan area costs $30,000, really bad investment. I'm just being a little funny here. But, but isn't that tragic? And then how many kids? Most kids in America, over 50%, do not have a significant father figure in their lives. So where do they find it? And I would say that's one reason why we have these sexual identity problems. Kids are growing up without a mom and a dad, a good masculine, a good feminine example to be that witness of who you're called to be. It's worse for the African-American community. It's 75% and higher. And we look at so many of these young people and their family life is a shambles. But it's not even just, you could say, them. I see this in what are supposed to be Catholic families, too, where I've mentioned this, families don't take time for church on Sunday. You can go to soccer or gymnastics or ballet, ice capades, whatever. I hear all this in confession. You have the sleepover, the birthday, or you're just too busy, didn't have time. You hear all this. It breaks my heart because those kids don't have an identity then at church. But if they don't have an identity with church, something's wrong with the home. What's going on in the home every day? Some kids, they might get dropped off at religious ed, but that's it. Well, we can't convert a child with one hour and 15 minutes a week, or even kids that go to Catholic school, but they aren't living it at home. If we want to change, we need to work on our homes. So just think about your own home life. Now, I know some of you here, your kids are raised, you're grown up, but maybe as grandparents, you have the great mission today to do the best you can for your grandchildren. I think that's important, because sometimes the parents have gone astray. But grandparents can really plant the seeds of faith and be that good example. Grandparents can have the kids over and have them live in a home for maybe a week vacation or even spend a day and they have the religious artwork on the walls. And you can talk to your little grandchildren about the faith and so on. So I think more and more good, faithful grandparents are going to be great, effective witnesses for the faith. Or I mentioned in the last talk about how Bill Perzinski brought the two, two teenagers to church every Sunday, was explaining the faith, and he had those, helped get those kids baptized and the other sacraments, and they're still very practicing. So we can look at that. But what's the way to do this? And quite frankly, it's going to take some martyrdom because kids are kids and they may resist. One is pray together. Say the, not only grace at meals, and that's not just at home, but even at the restaurants. So say the grace at meals. I would encourage you, if you can do a family rosary, that's good, or even a decade, because little ones might not be able to sit through a whole rosary. Or when you're reading the kids a story at nighttime, why not the kids' Bible? If you have teenagers, why not maybe read the Bible with them? Think of ways that you can bring prayer into your life. Sunday Mass is essential, without question, but that day-to-day -day home life of prayer is important. I remember my earliest years, my parents kneeling down with myself and my brother, and we prayed. 
And it wasn't just going through like the Our Father, Hail Mary, but we'd pray for like, you know, grandma. I only had one grandparent. And we'd pray for special needs, like if somebody is having some sickness, whatever. But that left a mark. So statistics that show that 50% divorce rate in our country also show that if families go to Mass every Sunday or a church service, it drops to 10%. And if families pray together each day, 5%. And if families don't contracept, less than 1%. Same studies. What's the difference? God. The presence of God. Now granted, you might be a martyr because teenagers might resist. That's absolutely the rosary. Whatever. But you know what? You're a family. You do things together. And maybe this is where you have this endure versus attack kind of thing. But, you know, sometimes Parents will say, oh, you know, my kid got con confirmed and now he doesn't want to go to Mass anymore. He refuses to go to Mass. I said, well, that's pitiful. I said, you're the parent. Do you feed the kid? Does he have a room in your house? Do you pay his tuition? Does he drive your car? If so, he goes to church with the family. No questions asked. Growing up, it never came up. I can honestly say, it never came up. <coughs> Because if we wanted food, clean clothes, a <laughs> roof, and so on, we knew as a family we went to Mass. And if for some reason, like you had to do something else, my parents still made sure you went to Mass on Sunday. But parents can't be wimps. You have to be martyrs. You have to be the witnesses of the faith. It's who, like my father always said, you have no rights <laughs> until you're on your own. You know, this is not a democracy. It's a benevolent dictatorship. You know, and that's, there you have it. Now, another very important thing to do, to be mindful of, is taking time to eat together. In our world today, our community, so many kids never eat together as a family. And I see going to a restaurant, so many families there. And restaurants are restaurants, now and then's fine, but they never have that home life experience of like preparing the meal or you know, eating, you know, talking together as a family. And then you go to restaurants and they pull out Beelzebub here. <laughs> and, you know, and you see the whole family. So mom, dad, you have three kids and they're all going <laughs> What kind of life is that? You aren't talking as a family. I was at a restaurant with my mom and her friend Helen Grundy down the street, and been a neighbor since we moved in, 66, in the neighborhood. And next to us was this table, and you had two grandparents, two grandparents, mom and dad, and three kids. Well, all the kids are doing this. I'm like, shouldn't you be talking to your grandparents? They're visiting. There's a generational wisdom that could be passed on, family stories, and shame on the parents for letting the kids do this. But that's why we live in this world where we become isolated and then we start thinking, I'm God, so I'll change my sex and whatever else. Think about it. We isolate ourselves. So eat together. And you have to, under, you have to make the time for it. Like I have a friend, he owns a restaurant, so he works nights. I mean, if you're a restaurant chef, you own the restaurant, you work nights. So what does he do? <coughs> 
he gets up early. He makes breakfast so that the family eats breakfast together. And then when he comes home at night, they have dessert together. That's good, because the kids go to school. On Sundays, restaurants closed. They work together and they make, after Sunday Mass, their big like lunch-brunch kind of breakfast. And they're working together. And they're talking together. Eat together. More and more statistics are showing, like the University of Michigan, even IBM has done a study, that if kids are eating with their parents three to four times a week at least, then there's a significant drop in drug abuse, teenage pregnancy, high school dropout. Why? There's a bonding. And the other interesting thing is they did a survey with teenagers. 90% of teenagers or more because some studies will say more, say they look forward to those dinners. So even if they might be griping about it, they look forward to it. They need to have that bonding, that connection with the family, and be able to discuss things. Next thing, we need good fathers. And not that we don't need good mothers, we do. We need good mothers. But because of the situation we're in, we really need active fathers in the faith. Oftentimes, I think in Catholic families, really it's the mom who takes management of making sure the prayers, the kids go to religious ed, and so on. Fathers have to be a real Saint Joseph, that good masculine example, faithful spouse, faithful father. Because studies are showing, there's a Swiss study done, and it showed that if fathers are actively engaged in the religious practices of the home, there is a significant, almost by one-third, probability that the kids will stick with church after they grow up because they see their father taking it seriously. If we look at the life of Pope St. John Paul II, who lost his mom when he was just nine years old, he vividly remembers seeing his father kneel down and pray every night. By himself. Of course, he took little John Paul to church and so on, but he vividly remembers seeing his father kneel down. And he said, my little home was like my first seminary. That's in the book Witness to Hope. Pope Benedict, who lived in very trying times because it was the rise of Nazism, his father was a policeman. And his father, he witnessed his father defending a Jewish man who was, beating, who was being beaten up by the brown shirts. Eventually, his father had to retire early because he wouldn't give in to the Nazi policies. But Pope Benedict had a great father. So we need good moms without question. But in our world today, we need more fathers to step up and be martyrs and witnesses for the faith. Again, because of the divorce rates that we have, I would say, grandfathers, you are more and more important than ever because kids, young men especially, need to have that male figure in their lives. So if we look at studies, Father John Harvey, who is the founder of Courage, which was a spiritual help group for individuals who were battling same-sex attraction, he said, he said over and over again what young men need is a good male figure growing up, be it their actual father, preferably, but if that's not the case, 
a good uncle, a good grandfather, someone they can identify with so that they know who they are. The other thing to do in your families, and this is important, I mentioned defending the faith, you know, support the faith. Sometimes we undermine ourselves in that we bash our church. We aren't very good witnesses. Now, Grant, no institution's perfect, I know that. But in my other parish, there was, uh, I just had arrived there, this goes back to the early 90s. So I'd arrived there and a lady came up to me, she's crying because her son was getting married outside of the church and here he'd gone through Catholic school, high school, all that. He's getting married outside of the church and she doesn't know what to do and he doesn't want to be part of the Catholic church anymore and so on. So I felt bad and I mentioned it to the pastor. <laughs> the pastor said, go figure. She's dumped on every priest that's ever served in this parish, insulted him, so why would he believe? How many times do we do that? You know, one thing I learned growing up is, and we had some real characters growing up at St. Bernadette's, we did. Um, but you know, my parents, you know, they might say, well, here comes the tithing sermon again or something like that. But I never heard my parents speak ill about a priest. They never did. And that's something we need to remember. You know, priests aren't perfect, we're human beings. But you know, we ought to be supporting our church and teaching our kids the value of church. Because church should be part of the home. Yes, the domestic church is the home. I've mentioned how important it is for you to share life, to pray together, to teach your kids the faith, and so on. But don't forget, there's also the bigger church. And just like any family, it's got its problems. It has its characters but we ought to be supporting the church and trying to support our priests. So, take some time and think about how you can better support the religious education, the faith formation of your kids in just these ways. Now, I will say one last thing, and because it's hard, but we are called to be martyrs. And it's not always easy because kids will do what they want to do. But I think of St. Thomas More, another martyr. And Thomas More refused to condone the divorce of Henry VIII with his legitimate wife, Catherine of Aragon. And he refused to condone and accept Anne Boleyn as the rightful queen. So he resigned. Now he tried to endure, because he knew you can't attack the king, and so on. And we know Henry VIII made himself head of the Church of England, and so on and so forth. But Thomas More never gave in. He could have. Henry VIII would have rewarded him greatly with power and positions and wealth and so on if Thomas More, one of the most respected men in England, would have said, Henry, I'm all for you. Anne Boleyn's the rightful queen. But no. Thomas More went to the scaffold and he said, I'm the king's good servant, but God's first. If you still have time, if you go down to the John Paul II Center, it's worthwhile. They have a beautiful exhibit on Thomas More. But ask yourself this. What if your child says to you, I'm divorced, but I'm going to get married again without an annulment. Do you go to the wedding? That's adultery. You're witnessing adultery. There's no annulment. Jesus said in the sacred scriptures, we just read it at Mass, he who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. How can we abandon Jesus? 
Or, I've known this, what about a same-sex marriage? Do you go witness that one? I've known two families. They've witnessed their kid in one of these same-sex marriages. Now, these are good Catholics. They say, well, we're supporting the child. Supporting the child committing a mortal sin? Oh, but we talk to the child and so on. But still, you're watching your child commit a mortal sin in something that is not instituted by God, and you're witnessing to all those people there who may not know you, have never met you, say, this is okay. Real problem in our society. I have to say it'd be very hard, very hard for any parent to say, I'm sorry, I'm not going to your wedding because it's wrong. Get your annulment first before you get remarried. Have it in the church. Or, I can't witness something that's not a marriage in the eyes of God. I once had to tell that to my relative. I had, he wanted to get married. Again, had been divorced. Good reasons for a divorce and so on. But I had to say, I can't go to your wedding unless it's approved by the church first. And neither is mom. Simple as that. Not easy, but saved a soul, I hope. So that's martyrdom too. And that might be the hardest kind of martyrdom we face today. So when it's in our own home. So give your, and I'm not saying it's easy. I don't pretend it's easy. But that's when we need the grace of the Holy Spirit. And with that, it's like Thomas More said. Might be the king's servant, but I'm God's first. And no matter what happens in this world, I have the hope of heaven. So we witness to Christ. Because without him, we're doomed. We witness to Christ. All right, so for question and answer, who's first? Can you talk a little bit more about gay marriage when it comes up, you know, in Thanksgiving dinner or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, again, you're dealing with the irrational, probably that are just politically motivated. But it, in a very meek, controlled way, you say it makes sense that marriage is between a man and a woman. They complement each other. Now, of course, we could bring in Genesis image and likeness of God, equal dignity, and so on. God bless them. But when you think about it, our bodies. You know, men and women here, we all share hearts and lungs, two kidneys, eyes, ears, all that. What don't we have in common? What makes babies? Man and woman. It takes man and woman to have a child. Very reasonable. It makes sense. And a child, this is the key, a child has a right to a mom and a dad and to be raised in a family. Because again, if you look at stories, I came across a story where a young man, he's in his 20s in California, land of fruits and nuts, as, um, <laughs> was raised by two lesbians. Well, eventually he asked the question, why do I have two mommies? Where's my daddy? Take biology, right? Biology. So what, started asking, well, who's my, who's my daddy? And Mommies said, well, we went to this laboratory. Well, doesn't that make a kid feel good? <laughs> really. I, I was made in a laboratory. Oh, great. Then he found out 
that daddy also sired 149 other kids. So somewhere in California, you've got this young man wondering who 149 half-siblings are in his life. Now what's that going to do to our gene pool? This is why when we look at just civil law, much of it was made to protect marriage, the family, and children. The divorce laws, who you can marry laws, and so on. There you go. And then you have to say, well, see this is where you have to really pray for patience. Because then you say, well, if same-sex marriage is okay, why shouldn't Mormons be allowed to have multiple wives? Because technically, the Book of Mormon allows that, and Utah could only become a state when they agreed to one man, one woman marriage. Or why, is it, why can't Muslims have four wives? The Quran says you can. So take it to the extreme. Or we have nutcase in England who married a tree. It's not legal, but she said, I'm married to a tree. Okay, go ahead. Or why not an animal? You know, you look at these PETA people and how much they love animals. When is someone going to marry Fluffy the cat? You know, and I don't mean to be, you know, like glib about this, but people don't think. Because once you, it's the slippery slope. Once you redefine marriage, why not? See, stupid, I shouldn't say it. Supreme Court of the United States <laughs> redefined, see it's getting late, redefined marriage. And really, I don't know why, because if I were a Mormon, I'd say, well, if you re redefined marriage so that two boys, two girls could get married, why can't I have multiple wives? It's my right. You said the most important thing is that people find love in their lives. Well, I found love with a room of women. <laughs> you know, really. Or why doesn't a Muslim sue and say, I want to have four wives. My Quran says I can. The Supreme Court set themselves up in quicksand. Because all you're going to say is, it's because we said so, you can't. That's where we are. Instead of saying reasonably, it makes sense you can't, instead, we're now just saying, we decided. But try to, at Thanksgiving dinner, try to explain this to people. Good luck. Really. That's when you bring out the Pepto-Bismol or something like that. And that's the sad part. But the key is you try to present it in that reasonable way and draw it out. See, that's, that's a key thing. If we accept this, what's going to happen? Because conscience has to look at not just this little immediate moment. Conscience has to think, well, if I do this, what could happen? Because even if something's good right now, the consequences could be devastating. But with relatives, especially at holiday meals, they aren't always rational. Anything else? Well, yes. I can just tell you that ICC oh. has a wonderful two-part over there that Father Scalia did on that subject. And I bought, I, I didn't buy, I donated for extra copies. And this subject came up at a summer um, family reunion. And while I was meek, I stuck a copy of those ICC tapes in the family's car. And it was their decision to listen to it or not, mm -hmm. but it's wonderfully do done, wonderfully done. Mm -hmm. And I 
always have extra copies of those ICC CDs. Remind me to pay you later for the plug. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and not only ICC, but also the Lighthouse Media. You go to Forum, there's lots of resources because after all, we all need help forming our arguments. So it's good to pray to the Holy Spirit, but also look at how the Holy Spirit has helped others so that you can form your own arguments and positions. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us. <laughs>